Welcome to the Delano Newsmakers podcast, bringing context to the stories that matter in Luxembourg. I'm Jess Baldry, and today we're going to look at Bitcoin, a currency which you will never hold in your hand like euros, dollars or sterling, yet seems to be ubiquitous and could have far-reaching consequences for all parts of society. In 2014, a member of the U.S. House of Congress uh, from Colorado wrote a letter calling for the total banning or strict regulation of the currency that was used in transacting illegal goods, anonymous transactions, tax fraud, and services such as speculative gambling, and he encouraged regulators in the U.S. to act quickly and prohibit this dangerous currency from harming hardworking Americans. He was referring to the U.S. dollar. Now, this was in response to another senator who had called for the ban of Bitcoin for the exact same reasons. This response letter calling for the ban of the U.S. dollar was satirical in nature and was meant to draw attention to the fact that Bitcoin and other digital currencies are not any more susceptible to the problems of the U.S. dollar. In fact, the vast majority of illegal transactions are conducted by the U.S. dollar, which is the reserve currency of the world. That was Dr. James Mulley, Academic Dean of the European Business University of Luxembourg, who lectures in Applied Blockchain Technology, the technology on which Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies is based. Developed as the first digital and global money system currency in 2009, many people distrustful of banks have been attracted to blockchain, Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies because they involve no banks, fees or regulation. So James... Is Bitcoin illegal? And if so, how does it exist? It is illegal in some countries, uh, and it is unregulated in others. However, if we take a look at the news that just emerged recently, Canada has recognized the first ETF, exchange-traded fund, in North America. Now, what does this mean, and what does this forebode? Well, consider the fact that Bitcoin is worth over $900 billion in total market capitalization. That's the price of Bitcoin relative to the numbers that have been issued. That is twice the value of J.P. Morgan, America's most valuable bank, uh, more than eight times Goldman Sachs or eight Goldman Sachses, and a third of the entire FTSE 100. So let's be clear, Bitcoin is here. When the question of illegality and fraud arises, this is a simple story of false analogy. So the narrative that's often associated with Bitcoin is that it's the currency used by criminals, when, as you point out, so is any currency. Now, how did it end up with this bad reputation? Ross Albricht. This is the 31-year-old American who created the Silk Road, a Bitcoin market uh, facilitating the sale of $1 billion in illegal drugs. He was sentenced, by the way, to life in prison on February 2015. This became the image and portrayal of Bitcoin. How he was caught is where the true story of Bitcoin lies. Now, as far as the illegality of Bitcoin is concerned, the United Nations Office of Drugs and Crime, they conducted a study and they determined that the magnitude of illicit funds generated by drug trafficking and organized crimes were estimated in 2009 to amount to about 3.6% of global GDP, with 2.7% or $1.6 trillion being laundered. So I guess the question overall is, where is uh, Bitcoin in this picture? 
Well, consider the fact that when we look at the amount of Bitcoin that is used in illicit trade, it only amounts to approximately 0.5% of all Bitcoin transactions. This is compared to what Ken Rogoff, uh, who wrote a book called The Curse of Cash, a Harvard University economist, and he claimed that one-third of all U.S. money supply, that's M0, is considered not accounted for. Well, criminals, of course, don't keep records and don't make their illegal activities known. But one-third of M0, well, there you go. So Bitcoin has been making the news a lot recently because its value is, is so volatile. And, and today it's at an all-time high, 51,000 US dollars per Bitcoin. A few weeks ago, we know that Tesla founder Elon Musk announced that he had bought one and a half billion US dollars of Bitcoin in January. Why has Bitcoin's value soared and why are people like Musk buying it? From the technical side, the yield on the 10-year US uh, treasury note hit a 12-month high of 1.3% and has riven, risen over uh, 20 basis points this year. Uh, gold is currently trading at a two-week high of about $1,700 per ounce. Now, what does this mean? Well, we know that when interest rates fall, uh, bond yields act uh, inversely. However, the perceived store of valued value assets typically move in the opposite direction to real bond yields. And bond yields have been falling. So gold rallied to more than from uh, $600 to a record price of 2007, 75 in the in the five months uh, to August. Uh, as the US 10-year yield fell from 0.55% to negative 1.08%. So why has Bitcoin soared? Well, over the past 11 months, there's been a continued drop in yields. So this is the technical side. Now, another perspective is due to institutional adoption. And this is essentially what Michael Saylor said is his hedge against inflation. Michael Saylor, by the way, is MicroStrategies. He's the CEO of MicroStrategies. And he said that his portfolio is like a giant block of melting ice. And well, just take a look at who is buying uh, in terms of institutional adoption. Uh, old Mutual, Massachusetts Mutual, is a 169-year-old insurance company. They invested $100 million in Bitcoin. The UK asset-based man manager, uh, Jonathan Ruffer, has accumulated over some £550 million. Pounds. And then you have Square, you have Facebook, you have PayPal, you have Bank of New York Mellon, you have Kathy Wood from ARK Investments, I mean, Ross Stevens uh, from Stone Ridge. All of these are keen institutional investors. Some have already moved in very heavily. But I will say that a Fidelity uh, survey indicated that 80% of institutional investors find something appealing about this new digital asset class, and 36% are already invested. I would suggest this is why it's soaring. Now, on the other hand, you know, we have uh, investors such as Warren Buffett, who calls this rat poison squared. And we have, you know, and we have Ray Dalio from Bridgewater, who is negative on, uh, on digital currencies. But overall, I think the tune has changed. And I, I, I do say that the problem with, with Bitcoin is everything you don't understand about money combined with everything you don't understand about computers. Now, if I understand correctly, Bitcoin can also be mined. You don't just have to buy it. Can you explain a little bit about how people do that and why more people don't? Mining is a process by which your computer is able to 
conduct a mathematical process in attempting to solve an equation that is running on its system. So this mining process is part of the entire Bitcoin architecture. And if your computer has enough CPU power, it's able to solve this equation and therefore you receive a reward. Now, what's referred to as the hash difficulty or the, the level of um, the amount of power you need has skyrocketed, has increased exponentially. And therefore, mining has become rather exclusive to those who have the computing power. However, mining essentially can take place or this problem-solving approach can take place anywhere and by anyone. And therefore, Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies that are involved in this technology are decentralized. Mining takes place anywhere where the capacity exists for the computer to solve these equations. So you have mining that's taking place in, uh, in Pakistan, you have mining that's taking place in Africa, I mean, literally all over the world. If you wish, take a look at YouTube and find some mining activities that are taking place in Iceland. You'll find large warehouses that are humming, uh, but taking advantage of the climate because it's, it, it extracts an incredible amount of energy. So we talked about some of the disadvantages of Bitcoin and, and the fact that it's got this reputation and for some people it's problematic. But if it is so problematic, why don't the financial regulators, like for example the CSSF in Luxembourg, why don't they ban it? Good question. Bitcoin is decentralized. In other words, everybody who enters or transacts in this space is able to do so on account of the fact that the mining activity or these transactions or this validation of the transaction is located in different parts of the world. So no one can actually hold Bitcoin. Again, it's digital in nature. And there's no choke point. This is what Kathy Wood from ARK Investments so well illustrates. Now, let me give you an example. Uh, we know that Libra, Facebook, had uh, attempted to launch this currency of theirs. Calibra, the company, is located in Switzerland. But Mark Zuckerberg was called to the U.S. Congress. And essentially, he was asked to stop his activity because they felt that the disruption that this would bring about in the financial markets or in monetary policy was just something they could not stomach. Well, Kathy Wood illustrates this very well. She said that this is a great choke point. Now, there is no choke point for Bitcoin. No government can truly stop it. Um, China had made an attempt to stop it, and it went to Japan. Pakistani government made an attempt to, to stop or make Bitcoin illegal. And, uh, and again, it, uh, they weren't unable to do that. In fact, to this day, the Pakistani government is mining Bitcoin itself because it's found that it's one of the regions, I should say, not the entire government. But they found that Bitcoin mining is so profitable. So you have governments that are currently attempting to regulate, control Bitcoin uh, and other cryptocurrencies such as Nigeria and India in the past and currently they've given a little bit of a time frame for uh, Bitcoin or cryptocurrency users to step away. But it's, it's literally, again, decentralized and truly democratized. So no one has the power to get a hold of it and stop it.
Before today, we discussed Bitcoin and you said that it's just the tip of the iceberg. It's in fact the poster boy for what is for you a much more interesting technological development, blockchain. Now, recently my partner asked me to explain what blockchain was and I really, really struggled. So I'd love to know, how do you explain to the young people you teach, what is blockchain? I do teach a course in applied blockchain technologies and one of the analogies that I put forward uh, is, is really prefaced with this statement. Um, the, the true story is not Bitcoin. The true story is blockchain technology. And blockchain technology is what has turned around uh, institutions, has turned around governments, has caught the attention of financial managers because it is truly revolutionary. Now, what I will say here is that when we try and understand blockchain technology, we need to come to terms with the fact that it is a sophisticated computing process. So um, to try and simplify this, I draw this picture. Imagine that you have a book, and this book has pages, of course, and there are chapters. And these chapters have texts, of course, and then you have this book and an, another book, let's say a sequel. So within this book, you have, in our blockchain analogy, you have transactions that have been entered. Now, these transactions follow sequentially as chapters do. And when these transactions have been filled in one book, in other words, the chapters are, are full, then you have another book. And the same process occurs. So this is similar to blockchain technology in a very simplified way to try and understand it. So blockchain technology is a list of transactions that have been entered within blocks, that book. And then these blocks follow suit in other blocks, another book, sequels. And in order to try and change anything, you would have to change all of the subsequent chapters in the book. Otherwise, it wouldn't make sense. The other way to also try and understand this is consider a tree trunk and all the rings. It's Blockchain is considered to be immutable, unchangeable, because of the fact that these sequences that are a very big part of computing technology cannot be changed. Very good analogy. Thank you. Now, blockchain's function as a distributed ledger technology has wide-ranging implications for a range of sectors. What do you think are the key uses that could impact economic activities here in Luxembourg? Banking is as I have always said uh, to my students, uh, is important. But banks are not. I know that this is difficult to digest uh, in some respect. But if you consider the uh, economic activities surrounding banks and or MTOs, this is, these are um, transactions that are conducted across borders, the amount of activity that is required in order for banking to take place is highly inefficient. And what blockchain technology does is streamline these activities. When you walk into a bank uh, and you are given a credit card and you walk into a retail store and you use that credit card, the amount of activities that take place behind the exchange of the good so in accounting, we refer to this as the matching principle. As soon as you receive a good, it's recorded as, as, a, as a transaction, a fait complete. Well, this is not the case, really, is it? Because secondary actors, third-party actors, fourth-party actors are involved in this clearing process. Blockchain 
clears instantaneously. And this is the big difference. So if you consider efficiency, if you consider transactions that are taking place behind the scenes in banks or cross-border payments, I would say that they're circling the drain in this, at this point. But what I'm trying to say essentially is that the efficiency that's being brought about is, and as far as competitive markets and how they work, the most efficient competitor is going to come and eat your lunch. So if you're not adopting the most efficient method, if you're not willing to consider that your competitor is uh, more capable, then you will not survive. Now, this technology is, as we said, pervasive. It is not stoppable. And if your competitor is, has access to this technology, well, then I think it's time you, dis- you considered it. In Luxembourg, we have a lot of back office jobs then related to banking and funds. Specifically, what does that mean? If, if we adopt blockchain technology for most of these transactions, what would that mean for these jobs in Luxembourg? I don't know if you remember, but once upon a time, we had to go to a bank and there were cashiers. And all these cashiers would command uh, attention because you had to wait in line. And it was quite interesting. Along came the ATM. (laughs) So ATMs and and, and cashiers are just an illustration. Now, here's another one. I don't know if you recall this. Once upon a time, if you walked into a department store such as Cactus, there were individuals who would walk around with clipboards and they would record exactly how much of their inventory was on the shelf. Well, then along came barcodes and RFIDs, and that job was eliminated. (laughs) So what I'm trying to say is that some have speculated that blockchain technology would eliminate the need for uh, a lot of these jobs, but jobs evolve. And even in, uh, for example, uh, financial auditing, all transactions are indeed captured on this immutable blockchain that we talked about. And, and the question becomes, what's left for the uh, auditor to audit? Well, quite frankly, verifying the transaction is just one of those important aspects. They're going to be still uh, in existence, unauthorized, fraudulent, or illegal transactions. They're going to be uh, uh, side agreements. They're going to be classifications of financial information that has to be correctly put in. I mean, there are jobs, clearly. So the cashier has simply taken on a different role. Uh, I currently do teach at the University of Luxembourg in the Masters of Accounting and Audit, and I'm teaching auditors whose jobs would not exist. But these are low-level positions, and these low-level positions will evolve. So you're saying that these low-level auditing jobs won't exist in future. Um, What does that mean for auditing in general? Will it just mean that auditors have to have more high-tech competences? Absolutely. Now, I'm not an auditor. And uh, if you look at, if you look to Deloitte and Ernest & Young here in Luxembourg, they publish quite a bit in this field. And if you were to take a look at what they have written, they're writing indeed about this topic and stating quite frankly that the field has evolved. So yes, incoming students, incoming, I, I guess, workers in the field will have to have different skills. Blockchain existed before Bitcoin. So why has it taken so long to adopt the blockchain technology in the sorts of applications that you've just talked about? In the early stages, blockchain was set up with a very simple premise, and that was to uh, work as a script. And this is what was put forward by the founders of Bitcoin. 
So what this really meant is that blocks of information and the transactions were linked together in a complete cryptographic verifiable process, right? A verification process. And this formed an immutable chain. So this is what's referred to as a script. So what's happened is that over the years, you had changes. And these changes included the second generation of blockchain. So there's a lot of work that goes into this. And, uh, and all this work does take time. And so you have Ethereum that came along in 2015. And the founders of Ethereum, for instance, had the idea that assets and trust agreements could also benefit from blockchain management. And therefore, Ethereum represents the second generation of the technology. And the major innovation brought about was the advent of what's referred to as smart contracts. So smart contracts are those that are self-managing. In other words, they are triggered by an, uh, they're triggered by an event, like the passing of an expiration date or the achievement of a particular uh, price goal. And essentially, the smart contract is referred to as being Turing complete, right? It manages itself. Now, this has evolved further to what we have today, which are third-generation blockchains, such as Cardano, Polkadot, and so on. And these third-generation blockchains have not only increased the application of smart contracts to what we call DeFi or decentralized finance, but they have essentially become more decentralized. The use of energy has evolved from proof-of-work the mining we talked about earlier, to proof of stake, a little something a little more complicated. And, uh, and this process is, is what does take time. So we have um, quite a bit of progress that we can see having been made. And, and I think this progress has really just made this space here more interesting. If you could put a time frame on the adoption happening, uh, when, when do you predict this will take place? Five years. How's that for a straight answer? Actually, I really don't know, but let me put it this way. In, within five years, we will see some incredible changes. And the reason I say that is that uh, take a look at what's already happening. This, this has already started, but in the space of five years, we'll see some incredible progress. Now, there is some news that's going to be announced by Cardano. Um, this is the IOHK group. And they're going to deploy the largest blockchain network globally at the end of March. Keep your finger on that pulse. James, thank you very much. You're welcome. Thanks for listening. You can listen to all our podcasts on Delano.lu and on all podcast platforms. And subscribe to the Delano newsletter for all the latest Luxembourg news in English. Sign up on Delano.lu.